The Biden administration reaches a deal for the release of five Americans detained in Iran in exchange for freeing up $6 billion in Iranian money. It's Tuesday, September 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is in Russia, where he's expected to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russian experts believe they'll be talking about an arms deal. I think what Putin needs immediately uh, from Kim Jong-un is weapons, it's ammunition. Plus the latest on the search for survivors from the earthquake in Morocco that killed at least 2,800 people. And this hour. It's not fair to make kids who are orphaned or disabled have to pay for their own foster care. Some states are changing policies that used children's social security benefits to offset the cost of their care. Cloudy today with rain possible in the 70s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. House lawmakers have their work cut out for them. They're returning from their August recess today as Congress needs to pass spending bills to avoid a government shutdown in a few weeks. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is likely to feel the pressure from within his own party. Sarah Ferris is with Politico. They want McCarthy to stand up to Democrats on spending, on border demands, on slashing money from the Department of Justice as it investigates former President Donald Trump. Uh, And they don't think that Republicans should fear a shutdown. And several of them told me that most people wouldn't notice if the government did shut down for a couple of days. And they're really not talking subtly about what will happen to McCarthy if he doesn't meet their expectations, uh, which means they are willing to, to, to go after his job. Without a deal in place, parts of the government could shut down on October 1st. A federal court again raising concerns that the state of Alabama is still trying to stop the process for creating a new congressional map that's in line with the Voting Rights Act. NPR's Hansi Lowong reports that Alabama has now officially asked the U.S. Supreme Court to once again weigh in on a congressional redistricting fight that the state lost back in June. In their latest court ruling, a panel of three federal judges say they are still deeply troubled and disturbed that Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature approved a congressional map that did not follow the panel's order, which was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. Court-appointed experts are now working on potential maps that include two districts where black Alabamians have a realistic opportunity to elect their preferred candidate. But that process could be stalled if conservative Justice Clarence Thomas or five of the Supreme Court's justices decide to put a pause on the panel's order. Alabama's attorneys have signaled they believe they can flip the vote of conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Anzi Luang, NPR News. Hundreds of people are reported dead in eastern Libya and 10,000 are reported missing after Mediterranean Storm Daniel caused catastrophic flooding in the region. In Morocco, rescuers still working to save those trapped in Friday's earthquake that killed some 2,800 people. Israel's Supreme Court holding a consequential hearing today as it considers appeals against a new law that restricts the court's oversight powers over the government. It's a major test for Israeli democracy, as NPR's Daniel Astro reports. This is the first time in Israeli history that all 15 Supreme Court justices are convening, which points to the gravity of the matter. Israel's governing coalition passed a law in late July that blocks the Supreme Court from being able to overturn elected officials' decisions deemed to be unreasonable. It's part of a wider effort by Israel's right-wing leadership to shift the balance of powers in Israel away from the court, which it sees as too liberal. Israel's justice minister says the court has no right to interfere in this law. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is reportedly trying to find a compromise on his judicial overhaul plans ahead of his trip to the UN General Assembly next week. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. And you're listening to NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Lemonster is under a state of emergency after serious flooding in areas of the city. Officials are asking people who live in low-lying areas downstream of the Barrett Park Pond Dam to evacuate because of concerns over the dam's integrity. There's a shelter at the Skyview Middle School. School in Lemonster is canceled today. The National Weather Service says as much as nine inches of rain fell since yesterday yesterday afternoon. Neighboring Fitchburg and Lunenburg are also under a flash flood emergency until later this morning. Floods from last summer will mean a thin harvest for some New England farmers this year. Michaela Savitt reports that top regional lawmakers are calling on Congress to provide more direct help. Lawmakers are asking the federal government to approve more aid for New England farmers as part of a spending package needed to avert a government shutdown on October 1st. A letter from U.S. Senator Chris Murphy and over a dozen New England legislators asks the House and Senate Appropriations Committees for more money to aid affected farmers. Most of the workers run small to mid-sized farms and aren't well protected by federal risk management programs. Many producers lost all their crops this season, and a large number of them will see long-term damage due to the July flood. According to federal weather officials, the disaster is one of nearly two dozen billion-dollar climate disasters the U.S. has already sustained this year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Michaela Savitt. It's preliminary election day in Boston. There are competitive races in four city council districts, including one open seat. The top two candidates from each race will advance to the general election in November. Peabody, Haverhill, and Waltham are among other communities holding elections today. Polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Two Harvard students want to stock all red-line tea stations with Narcan. That's the nasal spray that can reduce the effects of an opioid overdose. One of the students is Jay Garg. He says the tea and state health officials are working out how to implement the project. That includes logistics, such as how supplies of the medication would be restocked. I hope that eventually this program works really well and is expanded to you know, the rest of the transit stations and that the rest of the country also decides to make public access Narcan a priority. But I think that taking it step by step and learning more and being very cautious as we move forward will pay dividends. The students worked with State Senator John Keenan of Quincy to secure $95,000 for the project. Keenan says he's hopeful they'll be able to expand the program through the MBTA network. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. The Red Sox and New York Yankees were rained out at Fenway Park last night. They'll play a day-night doubleheader today. A flood warning remains in effect for the Fitchburg area and the Massachusetts-Rhode Island border. Cloudy today with a chance for showers or storms. It'll be in the mid-70s. We could get more showers overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Cloudy with another chance for showers tomorrow, upper 70s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, has arrived by train in Russia's Far East. He's expected to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. We're not sure just where they will meet or exactly what business they will do. The United States is concerned that Kim will sell weapons to Russia. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports on the benefits and possible costs for each leader. 
Kim's visit speaks volumes about how much tougher the security environment around the Korean peninsula has gotten. The last time Putin hosted Kim in Russia in 2019, he had this to say. We welcome the steps taken by DPRK authorities, he said, focused on establishing a direct dialogue with the United States of America. Back then, diplomacy between the U.S. and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as the North is officially known, had not yet collapsed. Kim had paused testing missiles capable of reaching the U.S., and Russia had not yet invaded Ukraine. All of that has now changed. In terms of denuclearization and peace settlement on the peninsula, the general environment is turning very bad. And it could get worse, says Wee Song Lak, South Korea's former ambassador to Russia. Russia could certainly use North Korean artillery shells and other munitions in its war against Ukraine, Wee says. And Russia helping North Korea with its nuclear and missile programs would certainly be a game-changer. But Wee says that won't necessarily happen. Up until now, Russia has been cautious in sharing sensitive technologies like nuclear and missile technologies with North Korea. We says that Russia has never been happy about North Korea getting the bomb. They don't like it because Russia still commits to nuclear non-proliferation. But still they have another consideration, which is strategic and geopolitical. And the more the U.S. beefs up its military presence in Asia, he says, the more Russia considers the geopolitical side. Professor Yang Mujin at the University of North Korean Studies in Seoul says that even if North Korea can't get Russia's help with advanced weapons, there are still other things it needs. What North Korea needs most urgently are surveillance satellites and economic cooperation. If Russia does give North Korea technology or fuel aid, that could undermine sanctions. And while the U.S. showed the strength of its alliances with Japan and South Korea in a three-way summit at Camp David last month, that could nudge Russia, China, and North Korea into closer cooperation. Again, Yang Mujin. For Kim Jong-un, the focus is on a socialist coalition as the broader picture, and on economic cooperation with Russia and China in a more concrete sense. But Russia could face some downsides of its own, if it helps North Korea in exchange for weapons to use in Ukraine, says Wee Song Lak. Depending upon what will happen afterward, South Korea's engagement in Ukraine's situation will get deeper and deeper. For example, South Korea could start to arm Ukraine, as the U.S. and NATO have argued it should. All these unintended consequences, we says, are just the opportunity costs both sides may have to pay for their choices. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Back to another major story we've been following, the earthquake in Morocco. Earthquakes are frightening. Anyone who's lived through one knows that. But do they have to be so devastating? We're wondering why this latest earthquake in Morocco was so deadly, and if there's anything the people who live in that area can do to prevent this loss of life if this happens again. We called Murdet Sosani about this because he is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Northeastern University, and he wrote a piece about this for a university publication. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, and thank you, Michel, for having me. So, Professor, our reporter, Lauren Freyer, spoke with rescue crews in Morocco who had also helped in Turkey's earthquake earlier this year, and they told her that this operation has been much harder. Now, some of that is the terrain. Of course, these are villages in the mountains. But you wrote that the construction methods were just no match for the earthquake. Why is that? 
So uh, uh, there are mainly two types of buildings that collapsed during the Morocco earthquake. One is mud brick or adobe construction. Mud bricks are bricks that are air in uh, that are dried in the air. Adobes have excellent thermal properties and energy efficiency. That's why they use them. But traditional adobe construction performs poorly during earthquake. That is. There are practically two important reasons for that. One, mud bricks are weak, brittle, and heavy. And two, building as a whole is not well integrated. Hmm. As a result, they often collapse suddenly. You know, we've seen, you know, the epicenter of this quake was in a remote area. It was in a poor area. But sometimes in places like this, we've seen ancient buildings still standing and modern ones falling. Why is that? Are they just made differently? Again, because uh, the traditional approach is relying on resources available in the area, the two types of building they use either is mud building, mud bricks, or the unreinforced masonry, which either case are not really resistant to seismic actions. So, so they're going to have to rebuild after this, or one hopes that they will, or I'm sure people want to. How should they go about it, and is there something that could be improved? Sure. I mean... One important thing in reconstruction is considering the culture and the tradition there. There, is, uh, ap- there are approaches that they can improve the, even the uh, adobe structures. The walls need to be well integrated and the material needs to have higher quality. The construction and layout of the buildings needs to be improved. If those things are done, mod built uh, these adobes can perform much better so one maybe quick thing is they can put a beam a wooden beam on top of the walls that would integrate the walls and tie the walls to the roof can they afford that though i would say that's reasonably affordable yes i mean it's just a matter of uh, educating a little bit as to improve construction use of wood would be a good uh, question is uh, timber available in the area or not. If it's not, it would be more challenging. That is Merjad Sosani. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Northeastern University. Thank you so much for sharing this expertise expertise with us. All this week, we are following news of a possible strike and last minute negotiations between the big three automakers in Detroit and the United Auto Workers. One complicating factor is uncertainty over the transition to electric vehicles and how that will affect U.S. auto jobs. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports. The negotiations aren't over whether or not to make electric vehicles. The UAW and the automakers agree that's happening. As UAW President Sean Fain put it in a virtual rally this past weekend. We support a green economy. Um, You know, we have to get behind this. We have to have a planet we can live on. But he says this transition makes it more important that assembly line and battery workers get good pay and benefits. If we don't secure this work um, and we don't secure it at a living standard, at big three standards, it's not going to be a good future for anyone. The union is asking for more than 40 percent raises, plus pensions, cost of living increases and job security. Auto companies say despite high profits, they cannot afford that. And one big reason why? The high cost of the electric transition. There is some truth to this. 
Ed Kim, an analyst with Auto Pacific, says, yeah, this is expensive for companies. Yes, they've been uh, very profitable, but they're also at the same time very eager to reinvest those profits into their EV product development. Auto companies have already pointed to the high cost of the EV transition to explain painful cuts. Take Stellantis, the parent company of Chrysler, which made $18 billion last year. It recently shut down a plant in Belvedere, Illinois, citing the cost of switching to EVs. But the plant, which made the Jeep Cherokee, had seen layoffs even before this year. Patty Ellison's shift was cut in 2019. It's pretty much turned my whole life upside down. Given the choice between a layoff or a transfer, she transferred to Michigan. Her husband still lives in Illinois. She spoke to me on a five-hour drive back to visit him. She gets home about once a month. Anything but convenient. And when I asked her about Stellantis's explanation that they shut her old plant because of the cost of switching to EVs, she was skeptical. It sounds like an excuse to me. If they're going to make electric vehicles, why can't we make them there in Belvedere? She'd be happy to build an EV, but there is one thing that does give Ellison pause. Uh, They say it takes less people to build electric vehicles than it does a combustion vehicle. The union is concerned about this, too. On the other hand, new battery plants are popping up to power those new EVs with lots of jobs, and the UAW is working to organize them. Meanwhile, the federal government is pouring billions of dollars into electric vehicles, and the union has been pressuring the Biden administration to make sure that workers feel a benefit from that federal money, not just the corporations. Patty Ellison isn't sure what impact the shift to EVs will have on workers like her. I don't know. It remains to be seen. But she says she's cautiously optimistic. One of the things her union is pushing for is the reopening of her old plant. And if that happens, analysts think it will probably be building EVs. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, amid a DOJ investigation into the culture at the Memphis Police Department, activists say officers have long targeted black people with aggressive enforcement tactics. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Masters in Healthcare Leadership an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders. Professional.brown.edu. And the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, now through October 8th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org.
When climate disasters happen, lives can be lost and homes destroyed, but we can also lose important pieces of our cultural heritage. Those can be buildings or artifacts, but also a lot more. What makes a thing heritage are the values that we ascribe to it. It's knowledge, it's stories, it's practices, it's language. The impact of climate change on cultural heritage on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Boston-based rock band Aerosmith is postponing its farewell tour. The band says lead singer Steven Tyler damaged his vocal cords at a recent show. He won't be able to sing for the next month. Six shows will be delayed until early next year, although none of those shows are here in New England. Some scattered patchy fog this morning and a chance of showers and thunderstorms today. Otherwise cloudy with a high near 74. Tonight overcast and a low around 66. There's a slight chance of showers overnight. Then tomorrow cloudy with a high near 78 and a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. The National Weather Service says a cold front will finally bring some sunshine and dry conditions on Thursday. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. A few days ago, actor Matthew McConaughey told me he wished he had not been so eager to grow up. I think we can all relate to being a kid, wanting to hurry up to become a teenager, then as a teen, wanting to hurry up to become an adult. McConaughey wrote a children's book where he's exploring some of the trials that kids face that can be character building. It's called Just Because, so I asked him why Just Because. When we're young, we like to do things because we can, you know? even if we don't want to or need to. We grow older and we get a little more mature and we start to measure our decisions, not based on just if we can, but we ask ourselves, we consider, well, I know I, I can, but do I want to or need to? That's smart, that's maturity, that's evolution. But I just wanted to remind uh, the kid and all of us that because you can, it can still be a good reason to do something. and. Not in a foolish way, but I think all the couplets in this piece, just because it's just, it's saying there's not one absolute, basically. It's comparing, it's showing the contradictions and that we all have with ourselves, uh, with each other, and understanding human relationships. And it's just saying, just because it's one thing doesn't mean it can't be another. Doesn't mean, it's the, it's the both are true. It really is a, an inspiration from a favorite verse of mine from a Bible, Matthew 6, 22. If thy eye is single, my whole body will be full of light. And just because just takes away a lot of a, a lot of judgment and shows you the, the paradox of living. Before I opened the book, when I got in the mail, I had my granddaughter read it by herself. She's about to turn 10. She had a lot of questions, but there were two things in particular. One was just because I lied, 
doesn't mean that I'm a liar. And the other one was just because I did it again yep. doesn't mean I don't regret it. I had to like really think about that because those are kind of grown up themes that I had to try and explain yeah. to a nine year old. Yeah. I mean, well, that's the idea that these would be a conversation and I had the same conversation with my kids, you know, the, the, just because I lie doesn't mean I'm a liar. That's a really cool one that I learned when I was about 10. A friend of mine, it, it fibbed to me. I called him a liar. Mm -hmm. And I saw him get completely defensive. Like I had just cast a nasty character trait across his whole being. And he was overcome with guilt and frustration and confusion and then anger. And there was, there, there was no way really out of it. it there was no, we were not going to lead to... Uh, um, him saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and then move on. And what I learned from that was, oh, don't ever label someone. If they did something one time, don't label them the liar. That's that's a character trait. You can say, you lied to me. Why did you lie to, just lie to me right then? That person, when you tell someone, which I later went to this friend and said, hey, sorry about calling you a liar, but you lied to me. And then he was able to go, Okay, you're talking about that specific event. Yes, you're right. My bad. Here's why I did it. I'm sorry. And we came back together. But boy, there was no coming back together when I labeled him as a liar. And so that's an example across the board that we have to watch labeling people. There are things people do in certain circumstances and situations that does not mean it's a full-on character defect of them, nor do we have a right to label them that way. What have your kids said about the book? You have a 15-year-old daughter who's 13, another son who's 10. What have they said about the book? Daughter loves pictures. She's very visual. We've talked about a, a lot of these couplets in different ways for, I guess, I didn't even know it, but for, for years, or they told me I've been kind of trying to father these some of these things into them. You know, uh, one of the couplets is, just because you threw shade doesn't mean that I'm out of the sun. And just because they shut me down doesn't mean I have not won. You know, this throwing shade or, or trolling or... And, 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 a negative response or a comment on something you thought was cool or true doesn't mean that it steals your joy. Doesn't mean that that has to affect your whole day and your whole mood. Doesn't mean that you go from, oh man, to sadness, to despair. Uh-uh, watch that. Um, because talking about the social media world, they will pile on. And then all of a sudden you can start piling on yourself. Um, so we've had some cool conversations about different couplets in our family. And we still are. And as you started off in the A in the in the interview, I'm finding that after I'm having conversations with my kids about this book, I'm still continuing conversations with myself, conversations with my wife, conversations with other people about some of these, some of these couplets that I'm going, huh, I'm still working on that one. I need to work on that one. This book, Matthew, I mean, the way I see it, it's it's more than just a children's book. It's a children's and adult book children and parents book to read together. Um, is, is that what you're hoping that that this book yeah. does, that that brings, brings these two generations together to understand each other better? That's it, to understand each other, to understand ourselves, to understand humanity, um, people, life, living. Um, you know, there's a poetry to live in. There is innuendo in context. And we're so deadhead red on trying to understand absolutes and make things certain in black and white. And uh, we miss half the picture a lot of times when we do that. I know it's an easier and safe place to go just to make a decision. But this is how it is. And 
it, it won't change. That's just not really true. The conversation piece between parents and the children, back and forth, um, and, and each person, mother, father, grandmother, brother, sister, child, is going to have a different personal understanding of what this each couple means to them, the scenario in their own life. It'll be different every time. I'm still having different ones than, than I had two months ago for my kids when I talk about it. That is Matthew McConaughey. His children's book is called Just Because. Matthew, thank you very much. Hey, thank you, sir. So, Steve, you've written a few books in your time. Have you ever thought about writing a children's book? Oh, my goodness. I get encouraged from time to time. I suppose you could do a children's book about Abraham Lincoln. People have, like, adapt the material. But my eight-year-old is also going around writing books, so I writing think she books. should be the one to what, write what's, what's her book about? Oh, it's kind of hard to say. Her handwriting is not the best. But <laughs> she it's its really dramatic. Are there, are there unicorns in it, though? I there mean, that's sometimes kind of the key. are unicorns, but mostly these days cats. I mean, cats. if you've got, if you want to read about cats, she's there with you. Okay, but what about your book? Oh, what about my book? Yeah. You mean my Lincoln book? Well, if my Lincoln book also had a cat in it, <laughs> she would be reading it. And my oldest told me years ago, you should write fiction. Why don't you write fiction? Then people would read you if you wrote fiction. Unicorns are real. There we go. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. As temperatures rise due to climate change, regions around the world where air conditioning wasn't common are now looking to use artificial cooling with dramatic possible consequences. It's 729. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more, medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. And ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes, and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. A major trial gets underway in Washington today as the Justice Department sues Google, alleging the tech giant abused its monopoly power to completely dominate searching on the web. NPR's Dara Kerr has more. Google has paid billions of dollars each year to phone makers like Apple and Samsung and to web browsers. Those payments are for exclusive agreements to be the default search engine on those companies' products. The government says this means it's near impossible for a new search engine company to enter the market. And that stifles innovation, competition, and makes Google an illegal monopoly. NPR's Dara Kerr reporting. Google's fighting the claims, though, saying people prefer its browsers to others and no one's forced to use it. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is in Russia to meet with President Vladimir Putin. Kim is expected to ask for economic aid and military technology in exchange for munitions that Russia wants for its war against Ukraine. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the U.S. will closely monitor the meeting. I will remind both countries that any uh, transfer of arms from North Korea to Russia would be in violation of multiple United Nations Security Council resolutions. Uh, And we, of course, have aggressively enforced our sanctions against uh, entities that fund Russia's war effort. That war has been going on for more than a year and a half. 
U.S. futures contracts are trading lower at this hour. You're listening to NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Massachusetts lawmaker wants the Healy administration to rethink its response to the influx of migrant families in the state. State Representative William Driscoll Jr. asked the governor's office yesterday to establish a unified command structure to connect the families with shelter and other resources. Driscoll says state and local government agencies are not equipped to handle the issue on their own. There's been no response yet from the governor. Congressman Jim McGovern is calling a move by the attorney general of Alabama, quote, sick. The state AG has filed court papers saying that he can prosecute organizations or people making travel arrangements for pregnant women to get abortions in other states. McGovern says Massachusetts has some of the best health care in the world, and that could be out of reach to people from Alabama. Do you need to check with the attorney general before you come for an appointment? I mean, this is crazy. But this is how insane these zealots are. Uh, and they're not, they're not going to stop uh, at anything to get there to achieve their goal, which is to make abortion a crime everywhere in this country. McGovern says he believes the attorney general of Alabama and others have the long-term goal of criminalizing abortion nationwide. A retired Massachusetts state trooper and his wife will each serve a one-year suspended sentence, but no time behind bars. James and Leslie Coughlin pleaded guilty yesterday to providing alcohol to minors at a house party in 2021, where a teenager drowned in their pool. Prosecutors were hoping for jail time. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. It was all rain and no rivalry last night at Fenway Park. The game between the Red Sox and Yankees was postponed. It'll be made up today with a day-night doubleheader. Game one is scheduled to start at 1.35. Cloudy with a chance of showers today and a high in the low 70s. Still overcast tonight as it falls to lows in the mid-60s. There's a chance of rain overnight then tomorrow cloudy and highs in the upper 70s with a good chance of afternoon showers and thunderstorms. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Police violence has been an issue in the U.S. for years, and now a spotlight is on Memphis after police there beat Tyree Nichols to death in January. Nichols was black, as are five former officers now charged with his murder. And the Memphis Police Department is facing civil lawsuits and federal investigations while trying to battle a high violent crime rate. Activists say a reckoning with an out-of-control police culture is long overdue. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports on this, and we have a warning for you. The story contains some disturbing audio and descriptions of violence. Montarius Harris cautiously unlocks the front door to his East Memphis home. 
the morning. The soft-spoken 23-year-old leads me into the freshly mopped living room to share his own brutal encounter with Memphis police just days before Tyree Nichols was killed. It was like three or four guys, they were all wearing black masks. I remember two of them having big assault rifles. Harris had driven to his cousin's apartment, but was intercepted as he tried to back his Chrysler 300 into a parking space. And I didn't know what was going on, and they never identified themselves as police. So I was kind of scared, like I thought I was being robbed. They were police, the same members of the so-called Scorpion Task Force who attacked Tyree Nichols. That brutal beating was caught on this disturbing video released to the public. In similar fashion, Harris says, officers threw him to the ground, dragged, stomped, and beat him. He's still traumatized from it. I haven't been outside much, like just seeing police cars and hearing the sirens and stuff, it like triggers me real bad. There's no reason I sh nobody should go through that with people that you depend on to help and to protect you. Unfortunately, the crime that he committed was he was in a car while black. Attorney Robert Spence is representing Harris in a $5 million lawsuit against Memphis. He claims the city sent inexperienced and largely unsupervised officers to aggressively police high crime areas. I think that was part of their charge, that they were to rough them up, to let them know who ran the streets, that they were in charge in a way to intimidate citizens. Spence says it was a political move to appear tough on crime in a city plagued with one of the highest murder rates in the country. The Scorpion unit was disbanded after Tyree Nichols was killed, but by then the damage was done, according to mayoral candidate Van Turner, former president of the Memphis NAACP. He says it exacerbated mistrust in the police force. It was this incident that allowed us as Memphians to draw a distinction. Yes, we want safe communities. We want a return back to community policing, but we don't want innocent people hurt, maimed, and killed in the name of effective policing. The U.S. Justice Department opened a criminal civil rights investigation and later announced a second civil probe what's known as a pattern or practice investigation. It will look at, among other things, the Memphis Police Department's use of force and whether officers engage in discriminatory policing and dangerously aggressive traffic enforcement. City Councilman J.B. Smiley welcomes the investigation. He says lawmakers have not gotten the answers they're looking for from police leadership. Not much transparency, not much candor as relates to the inner workings of our police department. And that's problematic and troubling. Hopefully, the uh, Justice Department is able to get more information than we can. Despite declarations of transparency on their websites, Memphis Police Director Sarah Lynn Davis and Mayor Jim Strickland declined to take NPR's questions. When DOJ announced its latest investigation, Mayor Strickland told local media he was disappointed and that Memphis is a hard city to be a police officer. Here's what he said. If there are problems, they identify them and we get them fixed. But what I really hope is that they find what I think is there is a police department that is abiding by the U.S. Constitution. 
The vice chairman of the city council's public safety committee, Frank Colvett, thinks it will take federal intervention to fix the department. Colvett doesn't expect the DOJ to find widespread corruption, but instead perhaps pockets of the department that have run amok. 1,951 police officers showed up yesterday and performed honorably. They're going to show up tomorrow and perform honorably. All right? The people that murdered Tyree Nichols, they do not represent the Memphis Police Department. They do not represent what Memphis is all about. But activists here point to a long history of lawsuits and consent decrees that have failed to stop abuses of power within the police force. No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! Amber Sherman is an organizer with Black Lives Matter and Decarcerate Memphis. Sitting outside City Hall, she says she's frustrated that elected officials haven't done more, including firing the police chief. They aren't being held accountable and they aren't holding the police accountable and folks are still being stopped, they're still being harmed, they're still being beat up. The latest incident, now under state investigation, was a 19-year-old black man who died in police custody last month. The Reverend Earl Fisher, pastor of a church in the predominantly black Whitehaven neighborhood, says what's going on in Memphis should be viewed in context of the push for criminal justice reform across the country. If you've been black in America for 15 minutes, you know something about the trauma related to policing. Fisher is part of a group of clergy who petitioned the Justice Department to conduct a pattern or practice investigation. He says the probe has the potential to validate and verify what activists have long complained about. Now, at least when these reports come out, they won't say that oh, that's just that radical preacher in Whitehaven, <laughs> you know. No, the Department of Justice said this. I think Tyree's case just was the straw that broke the camel's back. Rovon Wells is Tyree Nichols' mother. She's heartened to know that federal investigators are in town. For them to even come in knowing my son's name, that's big for me. For them to come in and to do this investigation, it's a blessing to me. Wells has filed a $550 million wrongful death lawsuit against the city, alleging Nichols died, quote, at the hands of a modern-day lynch mob. She hopes it sends a clear message. Making it where these police officers are really held accountable that decided to beat my son to death. We're not taking this anymore. You fix your police department or you will be sued each and every time. Wells says the nation's eyes are on Memphis now, and just like the George Floyd case in Minneapolis, she hopes her family's tragic loss can bring change. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Memphis. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Tuesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, Google's trial starts today on charges from the Justice Department that the company created a monopoly by giving its search engines preferential treatment. Low to mid-70s today under cloudy skies that may give way to showers. Mid-60s tonight and the clouds stick around overnight, possibly bringing more rain. Cloudy and back to the mid-70s tomorrow and there's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. 
WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Regulators with the Food and Drug Administration are raising questions about the effectiveness of a drug by Cambridge-based Alnylam Pharmaceuticals. Alnylam wants the drug Onpantero approved to treat a heart muscle disease. But Bloomberg reports regulators call its proven effects questionable and say those effects may not be detectable by patients. JetBlue is agreeing to sell Spirit Airlines assets at Logan Airport to Allegiant Airlines. The move is part of JetBlue's effort to win regulatory approval to purchase Spirit. The Justice Department is trying to block the nearly $5 billion deal. The DOJ argues it would hurt competition and raise prices for travelers. JetBlue is Logan's largest carrier. MGM Resort says a cybersecurity issue forced a shutdown of computer systems at some of its hotels and casinos. That includes its MGM Springfield property. The company has not said if customer data was compromised by the issue. It says it was able to recover operations of the affected systems. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. As the climate changes, places where home air conditioning used to be rare are seeing a need for artificial cooling. It's a new expense that is hard for people in low-income housing. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. On a summer day with temperatures pushing into the 90s, Heather Ronnie's two kids eagerly lined up for the ice cream truck. I've actually seen it driving down the road and they were freaking out. They're in Columbia Falls, Montana, about 20 miles southwest of Glacier National Park. In August, several Montana cities set daily high temperature records. It was the hottest month on record in parts of Washington and Oregon, too. This after hundreds in the region died from heat-related causes in 2021 and 2022. Most died in homes without air conditioning. This summer, Ronnie had to take her three-year-old son to the emergency room because it was so hot in their apartment. All of a sudden, he's throwing up and very tired. I took him in immediately. Nationwide, more than half a million public and low-income housing units like Ronnie's don't have AC. The Pew Research Center's Drew DeSilver says a lot of them are in the Rockies or Pacific Northwest. So a lot of those places, they didn't really need air conditioning, and so a lot of uh, homes just didn't come with air conditioning. 
Lots of low-income people use vouchers from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, to help pay their rent. But while HUD requires housing at funds to provide heat, it doesn't have dedicated funding to install AC in low-income housing. Requiring AC would be challenging. HUD declined to make someone available for an interview on the topic, but has said it's contemplating a cooling requirement. Public housing infrastructure is already crumbling, with various estimates putting the maintenance backlog at roughly $80 billion. Bridget Simmons is with the National Housing Law Project. So that's why this concern about financially how does it get done is a big concern. Lots of states have assistance programs to help people with low incomes pay their heating bills. But that kind of help for cooling is rare. And it's not just a matter of comfort. Low-income and rural Americans are more likely to have health conditions that make them susceptible to heat, says Dr. Lori Byron with the group Montana Health Professionals for a Healthy Climate. People with multiple medical problems, with chronic disease, with diabetes, they are more likely to die in a heat wave, especially if they don't have access to cool air. Analysis from the place with the most heat-related deaths in America, the Phoenix metro area, found that the majority of people who died indoors from heat last summer were in dwellings without working air conditioning. Authorities in Arizona have been setting up public cooling centers to reduce heat-related deaths. Byron says they're needed here in Montana now, too. Cooling centers, there aren't really any set up yet. Inside Heather Ronnie's apartment in Columbia Falls, her kids are devouring their ice cream treats. Ronnie, who works as a housekeeper, says she was able to afford a swamp cooler, which cools the air through evaporation. It hasn't helped much. She wanted to buy a cheap window air conditioner, but those aren't allowed. I thought it was ridiculous because we all have children here and it is like a hot box in here. <laughs> She says if she got help to install AC, she'd be happy to cover the extra utilities. She says that would surely be cheaper than another ER visit for her youngest child. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we look at why CEOs of big companies are staying on the job longer or being asked to return to their top jobs after retirement. It's 7.49. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition, a radio program that is consistent. You hear the same voices at the same time every morning, no matter what is happening in the world. You hear familiar voices. This morning, we bring you news of a huge legal settlement. Bringing often unfamiliar and surprising facts. Unidentified anomalous phenomena. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. Now featuring Hunter Douglas shades for light and glare control and hard-to-reach windows. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo Route 9 Natick and Innuendo.com. And the Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. TheFreedomTrail.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. School in Lemonster is canceled today as flash flooding prompts a state of emergency in the central Massachusetts city. 
North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is in Russia for a rare meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And the U.S. House of Representatives returns from recess this morning as disagreements on a spending plan threaten a partial government shutdown. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MassTLC's Board Ready Boot Camp, now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey. MassTLC.org. Some patchy fog this morning, then overcast and low 70s today with a chance of showers. Still cloudy tonight as it falls to the mid-60s. There's a chance of showers overnight and thunderstorms are possible tomorrow. Otherwise, Wednesday will be cloudy and in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Are some state governments snatching money from foster kids? Some young people are entitled to Social Security checks because they're disabled or lost a parent. When they go into foster care, child welfare agencies sometimes take away their checks and cash them to reimburse the state for foster care, which other kids receive for free. What? NPR News investigated this, and now some states are making changes. Here's NPR's Joseph Shapiro. Teresa Casados is the new head of the department that's in charge of child welfare in New Mexico. At a legislative hearing in July, a lawmaker asked what Casados thought was an odd question. Is our state taking the Social Security checks of kids in foster care? My reaction really was that can't be right. That can't be a practice that we're doing. She and her chief legal counsel drove back to the office. When we got back, we looked into it and found out that, in fact, it was a practice that the agency um, had for using those benefits and had been going on for quite some time. In fact, in every state, that's been the practice and for quite some time. That was the finding of an investigation by NPR and the Marshall Project two years ago. So we immediately sent out a directive to cease using those funds for care and support. Days after that hearing, New Mexico changed its policy and started putting aside those Social Security benefits checks for foster children to have when they go back to their families or age out of foster care, which matters because most foster youth leave foster care with little or no money. Few can pay for college. Many end up jobless or homeless. Teresa Casados. This could be really life-changing for some of these kids. Since the NPR Marshall Project investigation, there's been a lot of change. Fifteen states and cities have taken steps to preserve the money of foster youth. And last month, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Social Security Administration sent a letter to state and local child welfare agencies to encourage these changes. Rebecca Jones-Gaston is the commissioner of the Federal Administration on Children, Youth, and Families. I think we're in many ways setting the stage for folks to really be thinking differently about how to do this. The letter from the Biden administration reminds child welfare agencies of ways they can help kids in foster care save that money. We want young people transitioning out of foster care to have what they need to move into adulthood successfully. Some child welfare advocates say the letter from Washington is a good first step, but they're disappointed that it didn't do more. Amy Harfeld is with the Children's Advocacy Institute. 
the administration missed a leadership opportunity to clarify once and for all that it is never in a child's best interest for their money and assets to be used by a public agency without their notice for the agency's own gain. Foster youth are paying attention, too. Justin Cachetta is 22 now. Back when he was 13, his father died. Cachetta was thrust into looking after his four younger siblings. I would walk down to the store and buy food for my siblings occasionally or whatever other needs we may may have had. So he knew the family's finances, that their income came from Social Security, from survivors' benefit checks. It helped them get by, at least for a while, in their small town on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. A couple years later, Cachetta went into foster care. The state of Michigan took his checks to reimburse the cost of that care. That didn't seem right to Cachetta. The main argument would be that it's not fair to make kids who are orphaned or disabled have to pay for their own foster care. Last month, Cachetta finished college at the University of Michigan. He got through on scholarships and grants, but he says those Social Security checks could have helped. If the goal is to make success stories like mine the rule instead of the exception, I think that we need to support kids all the way through, from the time they're in foster care to the time they exit foster care and even beyond that. Cachetta's doing okay. He's got job possibilities in finance and in government. And he's advocating for a bill now in front of the legislature in Michigan to set aside the Social Security benefits of children and youth in foster care. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. Do you ever wonder what your pet might say if it could talk? No need to wonder anymore, thanks to videos on social media where animals talk back to their owners with attitude, like this dog caught chewing up a roll of toilet paper. What have you done? What you mean what I've done? It's toilet paper. You tripping over toilet paper. Why roll of toilet paper? Oh, we about to do this again. I chewed toilet paper. I didn't even chew it all. You could use some of that. The video comes from the mind and mouth of Bobby Johnson, who's a voiceover artist, in Dallas, he's known on social media as the rock star, although with an unusual spelling. Just take the vowels out and replace them with X's. So R-X-C-K-S-T-X-R. Johnson used to be a music producer. Now his full-time job is watching about 200 pet videos a day submitted by animal lovers all over the world. He watches with the sound turned down and looks for animals that seem to be saying something with their body movements like this sassy chihuahua. What do you want? I want to go out. Really? Come on, you just sit here pushing the buttons on this stick, and we don't do nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing. Say something. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Johnson started making animal videos during the pandemic. When everything shut down and we were isolated, I came across a um, puppy dog bouncing in a box video. And we're like, hey, that could be a song. It's like, it's, it's, it has rhythm to it. You don't lick me in the face, that's nasty. Hey, puppy dog bouncing in the box like this. It was reposted by, like, Colin Hanks and Missy Elliott, and it just blew up. Johnson doesn't let the animals do all the talking. He leaves the owner's voice in. Duke, you are not supposed to be in the pool. You want to play ball? We're not playing ball. All right. We need to get out. Let's play Titanic then. You need to get out right now. You could be Rose, I'm going to be Jack. 
Come on, I said get out now. Come on, Rose. Let's go. Save me this time. Let's go. But there's never any question about who gets the last word. I always love you, Rose. Duke. Live your life, Rose. Live your life for me, Steve. <laughs> Already doing that. <laughs> Please go ahead. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Half God of Rainfall at ART, a new basketball epic fusing Greek mythology and Yoruba spirituality, now playing amrep.org, and MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has arrived in Russia for a meeting with President Vladimir Putin, where he's expected to offer arms in exchange for economic aid. It's Tuesday, September 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Google heads to court today in the biggest U.S. antitrust trial since a similar case against Microsoft 25 years ago. Everybody has viewed that as a kind of blueprint for how we might enforce the laws against current tech giants. And this is a real test of whether or not that theory works. Plus, CDC officials meet today to make recommendations on who should get the new COVID booster. Also this hour. I had this idea that I wanted to tell my family genealogy through quilting. I was making this quilt from my grandmother's photo album. A group of women of color in Worcester are quilting together to honor their ancestors' stories. Cloudy in 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. The White House is upping the pressure on Congress to avoid a government shutdown. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports that officials are making a state-by-case, uh, state-by-state case on how they say House Republicans are harming American families. House members return this week from their summer recess, and they already face a looming deadline to fund the government by the end of the month, or risk of federal shutdown. In a memo released this morning, the White House's Office of Management and Budget Director, Shalonda Young, accused House Republicans of reneging on a bipartisan budget agreement. White House officials say some GOP lawmakers are instead pushing partisan appropriation bills. The administration is releasing fact sheets from all 50 states, stating how it says House Republican plans will, quote, gut key investments in the American people. House conservatives argue the cuts are necessary to address out-of-control spending. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Moving to the talks between car makers and the auto workers union. If a deal is not struck by Thursday night, some 150,000 auto workers could be on strike come Friday. This is a fight over pay, benefits, and the balance of power between workers and companies. And looming over it all is the transition to electric vehicles, as NPR's Camila Dominowski reports. Automakers and the autoworkers agree that the industry is about to build a lot more electric vehicles. But 
But the union wants to make sure green jobs of the future are as high-paying and secure as auto jobs used to be. Companies say they can't meet the union's demands in part because of the high cost of the EV transition. That's also the reason Stellantis gave for closing an assembly plant in Belvedere, Illinois. But one former worker there, Patty Ellison, wasn't persuaded. It sounds like an excuse to me. If they're going to make electric vehicles, why can't we make them there in Belvedere? Ellison says while she's scared to strike, she's bracing for the possibility. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. In eastern Libya, the death toll expected to climb after heavy rainfall from the Mediterranean storm Daniel caused two dams to collapse. Hundreds are reported dead in the city of Jirna alone, and some 10,000 are believed missing. The American cave expert, who was pulled out of a deep cave in Turkey overnight after falling ill more than a week ago, says he's grateful to those who helped rescue him. It is amazing to be above ground again. I was underground for far longer than ever expected with an, with an unexpected medical issue. Um, I want to immediately thank um, Afad, Rajib, Shalib, the, the support of the Turkish government saved my life, literally no questions asked. Mark Dickey suffered internal bleeding more than 3,000 feet below the entrance of the Morka cave and was too sick to climb out on his own. Officials say he's doing well in a Turkish hospital. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Leominster is under a state of emergency this morning because of serious flooding. City leaders say people living in low-lying areas downstream of the Barrett Park Pond Dam are being evacuated this morning over concerns about the dam's integrity. Mayor Dean Mazzarella says the city received about 11 inches of rain last night. This is not just a typical storm that, you know, we bring the street sweepers out, everything will be cleaned and, you know, in a couple of days. Uh, we're going to be at this for quite a while before we can get everything back to normal. So we ask for everyone's patience. Um, I know the world continues. It doesn't stop for anybody, for anything. So um, please, patience is, is the biggest thing. School is canceled in Lemonster today. There is also flooding left over from last night in other Massachusetts communities, including Lunenburg and North Attleboro. Polls are now open in a number of communities for preliminary elections. In-person voting will go until 8 tonight. In Boston, four city council district seats are involved in today's election. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, despite intrigue over ethics scandals involving multiple sitting councilors, voter turnout is expected to be low. Total voter turnout was just over 11 percent in a comparable preliminary election four years ago. That means a race may be decided by just a handful of votes. District 5 candidate Enrique Pepin says he's motivated to campaign by the story of Councillor Julia Mejia, who won her 2019 election by a single ballot. You know, if I'm tired at night, just knock on that last door. Just keep going, because that could be the difference maker for your future. Pepin is running against incumbent Ricardo Arroyo, former police officer Jose Ruiz, and community activist Jean-Claude Sinan. Councilors Kendra Lara and Tanya Fernandez-Anderson are also fighting to keep their seats. There's an open race in Dorchester-based District 3. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A new study by researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital shows that people who are night owls are at greater risk than early birds for developing diabetes. Sina Kianersi is lead author of the study that tracked 63,000 female nurses for nearly a decade. He says it found one in 10 are night owls with an unhealthy lifestyle. 
night owls were found to have a 72% increased risk of developing diabetes compared to early birds. That's a significant increase, but when we considered health factors such as weight, physical activity, and diet, the risk dropped to 19%. The study found a distinction between people who work the night shift and those who just like staying up late. It shows night shift workers did not have an increased risk of diabetes. A white 14-year-old who's charged with trying to drown a black teen in a pond in Chatham is due back in court tomorrow. Prosecutors say the teen called the black child a racial slur and then tried to drown him. The incident happened on Goose Pond back in July. It's 8.07. WBUR supporters include EBSCO with EBSCO Community where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. The Red Sox and New York Yankees got rained out last night at Fenway. The teams will play a day-night doubleheader today. A flood warning remains in effect for the Fitchburg area and the Massachusetts-Rhode Island border. Cloudy today with a chance for showers or storms. It'll be in the mid-70s. We could get more showers overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Cloudy with another chance for showers tomorrow, upper 70s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. A federal advisory group is going to weigh in today on who should receive the new COVID booster shots. The shots could be available in pharmacies across the country as soon as this week. We'll have the latest on this in just a few minutes. But first, a once-in-a-generation trial kicks off today in Washington, D.C. It's the Justice Department's lawsuit against one of the world's most influential companies, Google. The government says the company has abused its monopoly power to utterly dominate search. NPR's tech correspondent, Dara Kerr, is here with us to tell us more about it. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Michelle. So just set the table for me. How big of a deal is this trial? Yeah, so we're living in a time where tech companies wield a massive amount of power and have a role in our lives in so many different ways. You know them, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google. But we haven't seen a major trial where the government tries to rein in their power in a really long time. The last time we saw a case like this about corporate tech monopolies was back in the late 90s with Microsoft. That lawsuit centered on claims that Microsoft was bundling together its products to decimate its competition. And this case against Google is strikingly similar. With Microsoft, the judge ruled in favor of the Justice Department. Vanderbilt law professor Rebecca Hall Allensworth said it's going to be interesting to see if such a similar case works in the age of the modern internet. Everybody has viewed that as a kind of blueprint for how we might enforce the laws against the current tech giants. And this is a real test of whether or not that theory works. What exactly does the Justice Department say Google did or did wrong? Yeah, so Google search has become so pervasive in our lives that we use the word Google as a verb. You know, like, let's Google how big the Great Barrier Reef is. You know, you know that that's true. I think pretty much everybody does that. Yeah, yeah, we all do. And the Justice Department says that's no accident. Google has paid billions of dollars each year to phone makers like Apple and Samsung and to web browsers. Those payments are for exclusive agreements to be the default search engine on those companies' products. 
The government says this means it's near impossible for a new search engine company to enter the market. And that stifles innovation, competition, and makes Google an illegal monopoly. Google is worth nearly $2 trillion, and it controls about 90% of the U.S. search engine market. And internationally, it controls about 94%. How does Google respond to this? Yeah, so Google has put together a massive legal team to fight this court battle. The crux of its argument is that its search engine is simply superior to its competitors, and that's why it dominates the market, because people prefer it. The company also says if people want to use another search engine, they can. Despite Google being the default search engine on most devices, it doesn't mean people are forced to use it. In a statement to NPR, one of Google's top lawyers, Kent Walker, called the Justice Department's case backwards looking. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the two sides address this very rapid evolution of artificial intelligence and how that plays into competition and search. If the Justice Department wins, what's the potential impact? So this is going to be a really long trial. It's expected to last about three months. We'll likely hear from top tech executives like Google CEO Sundar Pichai. And it's going to be a bench trial, which means there's no jury and the judge will give the final verdict. If the judge rules in favor of the Justice Department, it's still unclear how he'd sanction Google. It could be anything from fines to a complete restructuring of the company. And that would really affect how we experience the Internet. Either way, however the judge rules, the trial will have ripple effects across the industry and how these companies do their business. This is really fascinating. Dara Kerr is NPR tech correspondent. Dara, thank you so much. Thank you. Next, we're going to meet a woman who endured last week's earthquake in Morocco. She met NPR's Lauren Freyer. I met 18-year-old Iman Erbin in a crowd of quake survivors lining up for blankets being handed out by the Moroccan military. You see old people screaming for the bed, you know? That's why. Yeah, yeah, blankets, yeah. The town of Amzmit's population, about 15,000, is like a gateway to the Atlas Mountains, which rescuers are still trying to penetrate. It's become a staging area for aid. Despite its own damage, nearly every building here is cracked or crumbling. Erbin takes me to what's left of hers. This is our house. It's completely down. I can see cooking gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is is the kitchen. Away from the aid convoys and desperate survivors out in the cold, the residential streets here are hushed, like walking around a cemetery. She points to her shattered window. A pink hoodie sweatshirt dangles from exposed rebar. That's the living room where she was hanging out with her sister and cousins when the quake struck. We were sitting here, and we were we were smiling. Suddenly, we screaming, we say, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And we go outside here, we, we climb, we, we were just genius, me and my, my cousin, and we go, we go outside. You were geniuses. Yeah, we were genius, <laughs> really. She actually doesn't have a scratch on her body after climbing out of the collapsed second story. A pregnant woman next door was unable to escape, though. They recovered her body a day later. Residents are trickling home to pluck possessions from the rubble. They're also streaming down from the high mountains with tales of villages running out of food and water. It's a village. It's a small village here. He doesn't have any any helps. You came from there now? Uh, Yes, I'm I'm from here. That's Imad Zaymet. 
Throughout the mountains, rescuers with sniffer dogs are searching for signs of life for a fourth day. Antonio Nogales is a Spanish firefighter who deployed to Turkey's earthquake earlier this year and says this one is way harder. Houses here are made from soft red clay that leaves few air pockets when it collapses. He's searched hundreds of homes here without a single survivor. There are scenes of horror here, but also reunions. Urbine's aunt spots her on the street and cries out. People fled these houses in their pajamas Friday. Urbine didn't even wear shoes. Her cell phone is still somewhere in the rubble. For many families, it's taken 72 hours to figure out who survived and who did not. An elderly neighbor paces the street with his walking stick, exclaiming, thanks be to God, over and over. For now, an olive grove on the outskirts of town is Urbine's temporary new home, with 30 of her relatives. By day, they shelter under a row of solar panels in a field. And at night, they roll out blankets. So this is where you sleep. It's, it's very different, you know. You can see the stars. Yeah. <laughs> this week, Urbine is supposed to go back to college after summer vacation. I don't think on the, in the future. I just want my family to be, to be okay, you know. Sitting here for a drink. As night falls, this family who lost everything offers me tea and gives thanks that they're alive. Lauren Freyer, NPR News in Amzmiz, in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. The Food and Drug Administration has given the okay to a new round of vaccines against COVID-19. The shots will be available for anybody six months and older. Today, a federal advisory vaccine committee with the Centers for Disease Control is meeting to talk about the rollout of these new boosters, which could be available in pharmacies later this week. NPR's Maria Godoy tells us more about them. The newest COVID boosters are updated versions of the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines, they're designed to target a relatively recent Omicron subvariant called XBB.1.5. But since the FDA chose to target that strain, other subvariants have become more prevalent. Andrew Pekosh is a virologist at Johns Hopkins. He says the new boosters are a close enough match that they should offer protection against these variants, too. So when you get vaccinated, the vast majority of the antibodies your body generate should cross-react to the variants that are circulating right now. As we head into the winter, with COVID cases rising, the question is, who should get the boosters? Today, the CDC's Vaccine Advisory Panel meets to answer that question. It's expected to make specific recommendations for who should get the shot. Experts agree the boosters are most critical for people age 65 and older, those who are immunocompromised, or have other underlying health conditions that put them at higher risk of severe disease from COVID. Here's immunologist John Moore from Weill Cornell Medical College. If you are in poor health and have an acknowledged pre-existing condition that puts you at risk of severe COVID, then you are a priority group for getting an additional round of protection from a vaccine booster. As for people who are young and otherwise healthy, while these groups are not considered to be at high risk of severe disease, many experts I spoke with say getting a booster is still a good idea. 
One of them is Dr. Preeti Milani, a professor of medicine at the University of Michigan. From my standpoint, I feel that COVID boosters are are a good thing for everyone. And the reasons are are multiple. One of them is that even if you're not preventing illness, you're going to have milder illness in general. And she says boosters may reduce the risk of passing on the virus to more vulnerable people. Moderna and Pfizer say they have ample supplies of their vaccines, which will probably be available later this week. But it's not clear how many people will actually opt to get the new boosters. The vast majority of Americans never got the last one. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, President Biden often declares his support for unions, but the United Auto Workers is not returning the love right now. To hear the story, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or listen on the radio. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we look at the potential impact of a strike by members of the United Auto Workers when their contract ends later this week. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at nutter.com. Could artificial intelligence replace hundreds of millions of jobs in the not-too-distant future? The next coming decade could be the best decade that we've seen on Earth, or it could be one of the worst. So how will people be able to make ends meet in a world with fewer jobs? Well, we'll explore whether the rise of AI could be the best argument yet for universal basic income. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An effort to prevent drivers of large moving trucks from crashing into the area's low-clearance bridges appears to have been a success. State officials say they had zero reports of bridge strikes along Starrow Drive, Soldiers Field Road, and Memorial Drive during move-in week. Only one driver had to be turned around. Some scattered patchy fog this morning and a chance of showers and thunderstorms today. Otherwise cloudy with a high near 74. Tonight overcast and a low around 66. There's a slight chance of showers overnight. Then tomorrow cloudy with a high near 78 and a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. The National Weather Service says a cold front will finally bring some sunshine and dry conditions on Thursday. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. 
From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Some of the highest paid people in this country seem to have trouble walking away from their jobs. We've recently seen Bob Iger returning to Disney. Michael Dell is back at Dell Inc. And Howard Schultz is leading Starbucks again. One reason is that these so-called boomerang CEOs are not planning for their own succession. Our colleague Layla Faudel spoke about this with Cindy Solomon, an executive leadership expert and author. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, and I think the boomerang really epitomizes the issues around succession planning in large organizations right now. My experience with the work that we do is that large organizations really stop investing in leadership development in those C-suite levels, which is what then leads to a lack of true bench strength, both when it comes to promotions into this level and certainly when it comes to replacing a CEO. I think the perception is that by the time you reach that C-suite level, you really should have all the skills you need. And by golly, if you don't, don't let on or certainly ask for help. Mm. And I think it's this lack of leadership skill and focus on building those basic leadership and communication skills that leads to the lack of bench strength when it is time for that CEO to move on. But why aren't they thinking in that long-term way about identifying and training successors so that a new generation can take the reins? I think it's more schoolyard than corporate boardroom. I mean, the process of really building your successor at that CEO level, it requires a subjugation of your own ego to the needs of the organization. And if a CEO wants their successor to be successful after they depart, they really have to turn over the keys to the kingdom, if you will. They have to let their successor in on the secrets of things that only they know about. At the C-suite level, you really don't get experience in how to manage a board or how to deal with their largest shareholders. And I think particularly, and I'm going to say something provocative here, but particularly male CEOs Mm. have a particularly difficult time letting go of those reins. And so what you're saying is they can't put their egos in check to let somebody else shine. Absolutely. Every female CEO that I can think of, particularly in the Fortune 500 that has needed a succession plan and executed one, has been really successful doing it. So what happens to a company when its top leader stays in a position for so long? What happens if that change just doesn't occur? Any bench strength that you did have below you in that C-suite, they leave for other opportunities. So those that believe they are ready or certainly want to take on that task, if they don't see any headroom above them, any movement and in that CEO level, they depart for other opportunities. So now you've already lost the cream at the top of the barrel for that CEO role. The outside world changes dramatically as well. And maybe the skills that it took you to be a fantastic CEO 10, 15, 20 years ago don't translate when the world has changed so dramatically around Mm. you. But if you look at the boards, they're in the same position. The stability of it all, is that what appeals to boards and shareholders? Do they see that as a benefit? I think the reality is that 
they're just comfortable. They're comfortable with the way this person leads. They're not challenged with new ideas or innovative thinking. So change is hard. And I think it's frightening, particularly for those long-term board members who are used to doing things a certain way. You know, it's interesting because I feel like we can take this conversation we're having about executives and apply it elsewhere in the country right now, namely politics between older presidential candidates, members of Congress. I mean, does this succession issue go beyond the boardroom? You know, you look at some of these folks making, creating laws around family leave or health care, et cetera, when they're in their 70s and 80s, they have no conscious memory of what it's like to be in those positions or in those roles. And I think you can say the same thing about the boardroom and about those C-suite executives. Cindy Solomon is an executive leadership expert and author. Thank you so much, Cindy, for your time. Thank you so much. Twinkie is getting a new owner. Twinkie maker Hostess Brands is being bought by J.M. Smucker as it spreads its peanut butter and jelly empire. The value of the deal is a lip-smacking $5.6 billion. NPR's Alina Seljuk has this report. The all-American Twinkie has been giving children a sugar rush for nearly 100 years now. It's Twinkie the Kids! Howdy, partners! Come on to Hostess Twinkie Town. This year, J.M. Smucker, which sells jellies, Jif peanut butter, and Folgers coffee, reportedly had to fight off big rivals like Pepsi and Cheerios maker General Mills to scoop up Hostess brands. And the most remarkable part of the story is that Hostess has gone through bankruptcy not once, but twice in 20 years. In 2004, it blamed the low-carb diet trend. In 2012, it blamed its union contracts. The Twinkie production abruptly stopped. There was a run on tasty treats as people scrambled to get the last Twinkies off those store shelves. Hostess broke up into bits and its snack and cakes business was sold to investors for just over $400 million. Twinkies came back and now, 10 years later, Smucker is buying Hostess for more than 13 times that amount. It's the power of brands. People like their Twinkies. People like their Hostess cupcakes. Josh Sosland is the editor of Milling and Baking News magazine, which has covered Hostess for almost a century, as it made rolls and Wonder Bread and in 1930 introduced the Twinkie. Now it also makes ding-dongs, ho-hos, zingers, lately trying to venture out into sugar-free cookies, caffeinated donuts, and Twinkies flavored with pumpkin spice. Its stock price more than doubled in recent years as people spent more on snacks thanks to hearty demand and higher prices. Sales have slipped a bit lately, but Saslin says... Honestly, demand for snack products is pretty resilient and has been for the last 20 years. And he says in the snack gig business that does not see a ton of drama, the hostess turnaround has been impressive, with its new price tag a pretty sweet deal. Alina Saluk, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. A group of women are gathering in Worcester to remember their enslaved ancestors through the art of quilting. It's 829. The team from New Hampshire True Crime Podcast, Bear Brook, is coming to WBUR City Space this Thursday. They'll discuss the psychology of false confessions and share images and audio from their latest investigation. Get details and tickets at WBUR.org events. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists. ICABoston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Congress is up against the clock to come up with a government spending bill by the end of this month. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports House lawmakers are returning from their August recess today. The Senate got back to work last week on legislation to keep federal agencies funded through the next fiscal year and are getting closer to bringing legislation to the floor. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is urging the House to work quickly and in a bipartisan way. I implore House Republicans to follow the Senate's example. Reject unrealistic extreme demands. Don't let 30 people way out on the extreme dictate what the House does. Some Republican hardliners have been pushing for deep cuts in government spending, and that's likely to complicate the process in the House. Without a deal, parts of the government could shut down on October 1st. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The White House has cleared the way for the release of five Americans held in Iran by issuing a blanket waiver for international banks to transfer $6 billion in frozen Iranian money without fear of U.S. sanctions. It means European, Middle Eastern and Asian banks wouldn't violate U.S. sanctions in converting the frozen money that's sitting in South Korea, which is to be used for the purchase of humanitarian goods. U.S. futures contracts are trading lower at this hour. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. State officials will host a public meeting tonight in Quincy to talk about an emergency shelter for migrants. The meeting comes after the white nationalist group NSC-131 protested outside of the Eastern Nazarene College dorm over the weekend. About 55 families currently live at the shelter. Advocates hope tonight's meeting will help build support for the shelter program. UMass Memorial Health says it will move ahead with its plan to close the Levenster Birthing Center later this month. That's despite pushback from community leaders and despite a request from the Department of Health to keep the unit open. UMass Memorial says it's closing the unit because there isn't enough staff to run it. Community advocates say they'll continue to protest against the closure. Meteorologists in Massachusetts are keeping a close eye on the path of Hurricane Lee. The storm is still out in the open Atlantic. National Weather Service meteorologist Tori Dooley says we could feel its effects by the weekend, even if the storm stays hundreds of miles off the coast. We would just really encourage people to, you know, review their safety plans. Uh, Maybe if they're heading to the grocery store this afternoon or tomorrow, maybe stock up on an extra case of water. Little things like that would, you know, go a long way in the event that Hurricane Lee does come closer to southern New England versus out to sea. The latest National Hurricane Center forecast predicts the storm could weaken before it makes landfall in Nova Scotia, Canada on Sunday. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. 
It'll be a day-night doubleheader today for the Red Sox and Yankees. They were rained out at Fenway last night. The first game is scheduled to start at 1.35. Boston is six games out of a wild-card playoff spot with 19 games remaining. Cloudy with a chance of showers today and a high in the low 70s. Still overcast tonight as it falls to lows in the mid-60s. There's a chance of rain overnight. Then tomorrow, cloudy and highs in the upper 70s with a good chance of afternoon showers and thunderstorms. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at UMA.com NPR. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Detroit Three automakers are locked in a contract dispute with workers and a strike deadline is Thursday, a minute before midnight. If the industry should shut down, even for a brief period, it means huge losses for the automakers. But what happens to businesses up and down the supply chain, the auto parts industry. Jeff Reitmer is following that part of the story. He's a professor of global supply chain at Wayne State University in Detroit. Welcome. Thank you. I guess we should mention this is your business. A car that is made by a Detroit company may be built in several countries all over the world. Isn't that right? That is correct. Um, All the way from and thinking I just bought a Ford that was built in Hermosillo, Mexico. (laughs) And you have part suppliers that are down in Mexico. So it is truly a global industry. Okay. So do you anticipate a strike that would disrupt that entire network this week? Beginning of the week, yes. But then I have seen these negotiations go 24 hours and you come up with an agreement at the end of the week. I still think they will strike one of the Detroit three. One of the Detroit three, you don't think that they will all end up on the same page? No. Normally, you want to be the first one to get the deal done. And then that's kind of the pattern for the rest of the industry. And um, UAW has kind of thrown that out the window this year. Hmm. Well, let's talk through the implications of that then. Let's say that at least one company faces a strike at the end of the week. What does that mean for all of the other companies that uh, serve GM or Ford or Stellantis or are dependent on them in some way? The tier ones or the top level suppliers, they'll probably have taken measures already. Um, Cut discretionary spending, for example. But the longer it goes on, they could start running into furloughs and things like that. What it really hits are the lower level suppliers, the twos, the threes. They're typically much smaller, maybe even family run, and the margins are razor thin. So a disruption really throws them into a turmoil. And you could see possibly some of them just um, close up shop and liquidate. I'm now curious uh, if these big three companies share suppliers to the extent where a strike against one of the big three might disrupt business and supplies to the other two. Yes, they do. Um, I was working on my dissertation in 2007 and 2008. 
Chrysler at that point had to declare their top 100 suppliers. 90% of those suppliers served at least one of the other two, Detroit Mm. three. And then 80% probably throughout the supply chain for all of the automakers, transplants included. What does the GM strike in 2019, I believe, tell us about the potential damage this time? I believe it cost GM about a billion dollars. And what was interesting about that was they didn't strike every GM plant. They struck a transmission plant and that shut down the whole company, which could be a possible tactic this time. We just got a few seconds left, but does the potential very real transition to electric vehicles complicate things even further if there's a strike? Yes, yes, exactly. You don't have as many parts in an electric vehicle. Oh. And you need less workers. <laughs> okay, so that might be part of what the what the tension is here between the GM workers, uh, or rather all the big three automakers workers and, and the companies themselves. Yes, that's correct. Jeff Reitmer is a professor of global supply chain at Wayne State University in Detroit. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. The U.S. House returns from recess today, and Speaker Kevin McCarthy is once again under pressure from all sides in his own party. Congress has a lot to do. It needs to pass spending bills to avoid a government shutdown. President Biden wants more aid for Ukraine and disaster relief for states. And the most right-wing Republicans want McCarthy to resist the White House or risk his job. Meanwhile, moderates in McCarthy's caucus worry he will give in to the far right on spending levels and on greenlighting an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. So where does this internal fight leave the House GOP weeks away from a potential government shutdown? Politico's Sarah Ferris has been covering this story, and she's with us now. Good morning. Good morning. So government funding expires September 30th. Congress needs to pass its spending bills before then or the government would shut down. Just as briefly as you can, Sarah, what are the sticking points? Well, there are plenty of them, but the biggest disagreement so far is that Republicans and Democrats have not decided on how much to actually spend. Uh, the hardliners in the Republican conference want to cut over $100 billion from the spring's debt deal that McCarthy and Biden have already agreed to. But it's a lot more than that, though. A lot of these conservatives have had six weeks away from the Capitol to talk to each other, toughen their positions, and they say they haven't heard a whole lot from leadership. Do the hardline members, the most hardline members, have any specific or kind of bottom line, red line, or whatever you want to call it? Well, they want McCarthy to stand up to Democrats on spending, on border demands, on slashing money from the Department of Justice as it investigates former President Donald Trump. Uh, And they don't think that Republicans should fear a shutdown. And several of them told me that most people wouldn't notice if the government did shut down for a couple of days. And they're really not talking subtly about what will happen to McCarthy if he doesn't meet their expectations, uh, which means they are willing to go after his job. What do you think McCarthy thinks about all this? Well, I've been covering spending for about nine years on Capitol Hill. I've never quite seen a situation this primed for a shutdown because there really is no way to keep the government open if you're refusing to work with Democrats. Some um, McCarthy supporters have even privately told us they think the only way out of this is by shutting down the government, showing the conservatives that he's willing to to fight for them, even if there is no clear path to reopening it. But isn't there a cost to that for the Republicans and for McCarthy? 
Of course. And I think most of, of the Republican conference knows that most of them have been here before, have seen these fights before, have lived through shutdowns and, and taken the blame for it. So a lot of those are ready for McCarthy to stand up to the hardliners, uh, not the Democrats. They're tired of being held hostage to this small group. It took McCarthy 15 rounds of votes just to become speaker. How has he managed to hold on this long? He's held on a lot longer than even his critics have been pretty mystified at his ability to do so. I think he's someone who survives until tomorrow. This is what he's really good at. Um, he has this persistence in winning over his critics. He has a lot of allies in the party that have kept him alive. And the question is whether this will continue through one of the biggest fights that we've seen this year. That is Sarah Ferris of Politico. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR on a Tuesday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report visits a New England mill town that's trying to revitalize its local economy by transforming its downtown with investments in the arts. Low to mid-70s today under cloudy skies that may give way to showers. Mid-60s tonight and the clouds stick around overnight, possibly bringing more rain. Cloudy and back to the mid-70s tomorrow, and there's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Part of a new system for filing Massachusetts unemployment claims is now live. The state labor department says the first phase of the new system will make handling claims more efficient for employers. The new site will be introduced to workers in 2025. Boston-based Eversource plans to power a new hydrogen production facility in Rhode Island with offshore wind. Providence Business First reports Eversource wants to build the $300 million facility on Quonset Point. The company says the so-called green hydrogen facility would help spur transportation and manufacturing in the area while cutting emissions. Blue Ribbon Barbecue is opening its first location in the city of Boston today. The chain will make its debut in Time Out Market in Fenway. Blue Ribbon also has locations in Arlington, Dedham, and West Newton. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Arts Thursdays at Harvard's Art Lab with the film Bravo Burkina, a magical migration love story by Wale Oyejide. This Thursday at 7, Art Lab at Harvard. This is W.B. Moore's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. For some people, researching their family tree can provide a feeling of belonging and a sense of identity. 
But for those Americans whose ancestors were enslaved, searching for their roots can be difficult, if not impossible. Diane Orson reports on a group of women from around the region who are honoring their ancestors through the art of quilting. Four women sit around a wooden table in a YWCA in Worcester, Massachusetts, sewing. They're a quilting guild, predominantly women of color, called Sisters in Stitches Joined by the Cloth. They create quilts inspired by the stories of their ancestors. Co-founder Crystal Rollins-Jackson says there was no tradition of quilting in her family. But I had this idea that I wanted to tell my family genealogy through quilting. I was making this quilt from my grandmother's photo album. And so I had photographs on that quilt and different symbols. She holds up a quilt with blocks of gold, red, and black fabric from West Africa. This was inspired by my visit to Ghana. And this is actually the view from one slave fort to another. There's a slave fort every two and a half miles along the coast of Ghana. Of course, it goes into other countries as well. Enslaved people were not included in the U.S. Census. African Americans were featured by first and last names starting in 1870. But their descendants often struggle to research family lineage. One member of the Quilting Guild, however, has a rare understanding of her family's history. Susie Ryan is a ninth-generation descendant of Venture Smith. He's the first black man to leave a first-hand account of his capture from Africa and experience as an enslaved person in the U.S. He eventually bought his own freedom and purchased land in Connecticut. Ryan describes quilting as giving her a voice to tell his story. This is a piece that I dedicated to Venture Smith, and this is the first 26 acres that he had purchased in Stonington, Connecticut, and the rock tied down with hemp is actually symbolic of Venture's rock. And then there's a footpath underneath the rock, and that's um, my way of saying I'm following in his footsteps. The sisters come from Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York, and have quilted together for more than 20 years. Donna Clark says their gatherings are a time for creative expression and friendship. We talk, um, sometimes we'll inspire or give others idea like use this color or add this to the quilt and they either take it or they don't take it. They use cloth found in many places, often clothing passed down through generations. Susie Ryan says she's started incorporating fabric from her personal wardrobe. I've had a lot of medical issues this past year and I decided that I'm including clothing of my own. It's just my way of, when I'm no longer here, my story will still continue. As a people, we've persevered and come through so much. Kimberly Love Radcliffe has created quilts about her family in North Carolina. She holds up a large one with a sepia-toned image of a dapper young man at the center. It's her great uncle. This picture was taken during Jim Crow. We don't know what they did at that time, but they're dressed fine, and I have old fabrics, some from that period of time, and hopefully, my children will be interested and learn from the quilts. She says quilting has helped her find community. I came to Connecticut as a Navy wife, and I, it's taken me forever to make friends. But quilting, it's a sense of like therapy, a meditation, a prayer. And a way to connect with the past while wrestling with ongoing injustice today. 
when things happen, like George Floyd, you know, we make quilts about that. When loved ones pass away, we make quilts. We, we honor them with fabric that they wore. Sisters in Stitches are reclaiming their ancestral history in cloth, and now their stories will carry on. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Diane Orson. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the search for survivors from the earthquake in Morocco, plus the return of a stolen Van Gogh painting brought back in an IKEA bag. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. When climate disasters happen, lives can be lost and homes destroyed, but we can also lose important pieces of our cultural heritage. Those can be buildings or artifacts, but also a lot more. What makes a thing heritage are the values that we ascribe to it. It's knowledge, it's stories, it's practices, it's language. The impact of climate change on cultural heritage on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Lemonster is in a state of emergency after storms dumped nearly 11 inches of rain there and caused severe flooding. An antitrust trial against Google gets underway today with the Justice Department alleging that the company illegally rigged the market in its favor. And officials in Libya are searching for more than 10,000 people missing after catastrophic flooding there. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Some patchy fog this morning, then overcast in low 70s today with a chance of showers. Still cloudy tonight as it falls to the mid-60s. There's a chance of showers overnight and thunderstorms are possible tomorrow. Wednesday will be cloudy and in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. What's it take to fix Main Street? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the Financial Times, whose distinctive pink pages have reported U.S. news for over 130 years. There's more at fearlesslypink.com. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. I'm David Brancaccio. First, in a case hearkening back to the great Microsoft Internet browser fight of the 1990s, Alphabet Google is in federal court today for the start of a big antitrust trial. The government alleges Google is using its position to stifle competition for online searches. The Justice Department says Google pays billions of dollars a year to manufacturers of devices like smartphones to make it the default browser. Justice lawyers also point out that Google requires its search engine be bundled into its Android software. The government says that gives Google an unfair advantage. Google says people use it because, quote, they choose to. And Justice filed a second case against Google earlier this year, accusing it of dominating online advertising. Groups of state attorneys general are also suing Google. 
I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. S&P and NASDAQ futures are both down two-tenths of a percent. Apple stocks up four-tenths percent ahead of its iPhone 15 reveal today. You'll be able to borrow your pal's Android charger for it. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Vantage Score. Vantage Score credit scoring models are used by over 3,000 banks and fintechs, including nine of the top 10. Learn how Vantage Score helps expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Coming out of the great financial crisis, I did a documentary exploring better ideas for the economy. For a taste of problems looking for solutions, we opened that film, Fixing the Future. It was called In a New England Mill Town Littered with Closed Factories. It's been years since the economy emptied out on us, and I've been waiting for the boats to rise again ever since. There I was, peering into a clothing store that had sat empty for 15 years. The Hathaway shirt and Scott paper jobs were gone, and big boxes had sucked retail out to near the I-95 interchanges. I knew this because this was my hometown, Waterville, on the Kennebec River in Maine. That was 2010. Same block a dozen years later stands a new $26 million hotel, the Lockwood. The bar off the lobby looks like it was barged up the river intact from Manhattan. Private hotel chains were not spending on this stretch of Main Street that time forgot. Then who? One of the beauties of being at a college that's been around for 200 years, and we expect will be around for 200 years more, is that we can be the ultimate patient investor. Mm. Yeah, we can wait. David A. Green is president of Colby, the liberal arts college that shares the zip code. We can invest in this not-for-profit, but we can do this in a way that helps to stimulate something better for the community. And having a great city is good for Colby, it's good for Waterville. Here's where I disclose I've long known Colby. My late dad was a literature professor there for decades. There's a couple hundred million dollars in reinvestment in just these four blocks of Main Street. Colby ponied up half. The other half comes from the Harold Alphon Foundation with roots in Maine. Individuals and the feds also chipped in. Across from the hotel, long gone Waterville Hardware is now artist studios and makerspace. A few paces north, this extravaganza, what planners see as a cultural living room. A place where people, it is completely okay to go for a cup of coffee, completely okay to go in and, you know, make ceramics, or completely okay to go and see a movie. Jacqueline Terraza is director of the famed Colby College Museum of Art up on campus, which has opened an outpost here, part of a brand new art center on Main Street. The museum is adjacent to an art house movie theater with three screens, all connected by Skywalk to the historic Opera House. Robin Samalis Getchell runs the florist shop in the old Waterville Savings Bank building. Moving here, her sales went up 93 percent. Any sort of sunny, beautiful summer day, there are tons of people walking on Main Street, having lunch, stopping in, getting a coffee next door. Um, yeah, you could look out and, and feel like maybe you're in the city for a couple of minutes. The college bought this building and is Robin's landlord. Nonprofits are tax exempt, but Colby pledged to keep what it owns downtown on the tax rolls, increasing tax revenue for the city sevenfold. That is an annuity for the city. That makes such a big difference for the public schools that are here, for the social service organizations that are here. 
There's demand for these services. The typical household earns just 41000 a year. And revitalization has winners and losers. If property values rise, it's great if you're selling or borrowing against the property, but maybe not if you're staying put, paying more tax. Also, housing affordability. It can drive rents higher, but persuade developers to build more housing. The college's role here plays into town versus gown friction. Colby's worked to ease this by building one of its dorms downtown, where students have to give back to the community through volunteering. Still, some residents now call downtown not Waterville, but Colbyville. Colbyville. You've heard that? Yeah, all, all the time. Ken Vlodick is owner of a vibrant sewing store, Yard Goods. He's fine with the hotel and the arts, but not with the college being such a power player, even with city officials and philanthropies so involved. It was a great investment. But when somebody says Colby College invested over $100 million in downtown, I look at it as they didn't invest a cent in downtown. What they invested in was an extension of the Colby College campus, which is what we have. Lodek's overriding issue is what the Main Street dorm has done to parking. He feels frustrated in his campaign to get local authorities to beef up enforcement of student cars. Nearer the river, a shuttered tavern, once famous for characters inside and brawls outside, is about to get the wrecking ball. A private developer likes the town's new energy and will build stores and apartments. President Green sees a tipping point. In the end, you can't have a project like this that is upheld entirely by a place like Colby or philanthropic money or anything else. You have to have the market at work. There are data on possible returns on investment when communities like Waterville bet on the arts. More on that tomorrow. I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and Public Radio to help keep quality programming alive, directtire.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.